please pray with me? Father, we thank you in the text that you have placed before us of your encouragement and your assurance of your great love for us and the hope that we have in you even in the midst of this life. Lord, be with us here now and guide this sermon that you may be faithfully witnessed to and your glory proclaimed. We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. Grace and peace be with you on this Mother's Day. Today, many of us pause to honor our mothers and those who have been mothers to us in the faith for their witness to Christ and to the eternal life found in him. How fitting, then, that our text in 1 John today assures us of that very thing, the eternal life that we have now in Christ. I've chosen 1 John to focus on, I wish I had a chance to touch on all of them, um, our Old Testament passage, although odd and all these things being written on different articles to tie on to the high priest, assures us in that high priest that our high priest, Jesus, uh, stands before God on our behalf. And then the, uh, the John passage reminds us that not only are we protected um, but we are sent out as faithful witnesses, kept in this world by God. But in First John, that I want to focus on, he's focused in internal life. And he discusses it throughout the entire epistle, but here as he draws his letter to a close, he has a few specific things for us. He wants to tell us about... Uh, our eternal life, the reality of it. He wants us to know of the assurance that what he says is true, that we do have eternal life. And, and finally, he turns to the confidence that it gives us before God. I'm in 1 John chapter 5, and I'm looking at verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. You have believed in Jesus Christ. You have eternal life. Right now, you are enjoying eternal life. Does that make a difference to you on a daily basis? Do you, do you know that in your life? You might not consciously, or you might always be looking for it and feel like it's just not there. But it is. So let's talk about that. Eternal life. This life is the Greek word zoe. <clears throat> it's different from another Greek word for life that you'll be more familiar with, bios. Bios is where we get the terms biology, the study of life, and bioethics, ethics regarding life. Bios is the chemical, physical reality of life. It's the life associated with our bodies. But we aren't talking about bios, we're talking about zoe. Zoe is full life. It's good life, the intrinsic quality of life. 
It's life that is blessed by God in the New Testament sense. It's life as God intended. The New Testament uses this with a force that conveys life without pain or corruption. It's what we hope for in the resurrection, and at the same time, what we have even now through faith. It's already and not yet. I wish I had words to help this sink in for all of us, uh, for we need it. I wish it could settle into our hearts and relieve all our concerns for the present and the future. I want to encourage you who have lost loved ones that there is great hope in this life. Be at peace and know that God has won true life for you. John wanted this for those he wrote to also. We see in chapter 2 that at the time John writes his first epistle, there's a group calling themselves Christians, but teaching that Jesus was not divine, eroding the reality and basis for this eternal life. This was a repugnant claim to John and completely unhinged from reality. John knew that because Jesus, fully God and fully man, had lived in right standing with God, void of sin, and died for we who were sinners, life had been won for us and given when we believed in his name. Remember, in his gospel, John explains that the purpose of his gospel, the purpose of that witness, was that we might believe and have life, Zoe life, full, true life in Jesus' name. You see, this is the gospel, that Jesus lived a sinless life, always being in perfect relationship with God. He lived in right standing, which is what we call righteous, with all God's commands and character. Because he had a relationship with God, he could die on the cross, being a new Adam, so that those who believe in him, who become part of his family, could have their relationship with God restored. This is a good way of thinking about original sin. I don't know if you've ever had kind of trouble wrapping your mind around that one. It doesn't make much sense to us as Westerners because we separate an individual's choices from the ramifications it has on a group whether we realize it or not. But that actually is part of God's design. Adam's relationship with God was broken, and therefore his entire family, all his descendants, inherited a broken relationship with God. Honor-shame cultures, on the other hand, get this immediately. They know that if you break a relationship, that relationship is broken for the entire family, and no one in the family has the ability to restore it. If their father's father broke the relationship, it's as if they did it themselves. The only hope of restoring that relationship is found in the other party. The relationship can only be restored, can be put back together, if the party who is wronged chooses to act to restore that relationship. Original sin, then, isn't so much a token that gets stuck on you at birth, uh, but the reality that you were born into a family who has no relationship with God as a whole. Those who oppose John claim that Jesus wasn't fully God, only a man on whom the, the Christ, some sort of spirit from God, descended on him during the time of his ministry. 
the Christ then departed from Jesus before his death on the cross. If, like John, you separate it, these two things, like John's opponents, you separate these two things, removing the divinity of Jesus, then you remove his ability to act to restore the relationship between God and man. If this is true, then God didn't act to restore our relationship with himself. No one who could do anything about this broken relationship died for you. Just some Jewish carpenter. The Christ did not atone for your sins as the Old Testament promises he would, and we are all lost. Night has come, and it is cold and death and hell. You were forsaken. But if that isn't true, if Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, did die for you, then oh, what joy. If Jesus died for you, then in your baptism you cease to be an orphan, a stranger to God with a broken relationship, a sinner by your very nature, and you become his child, a child made righteous by the blood of Jesus. You are now in right standing with God and have full and open access to your heavenly Father. He hears your every prayer as soon as you begin to lift it to him. Day has come, and it is hope and love and joy and life, life eternal. Day has truly come, and we can be confident that all of this is true. Look with me in verse 6. John says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God, that he was born, that he has born concerning his son. Jumping to 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and that this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. John references three witnesses supporting his claim that we really do have eternal life, the first of which that testifies is the water. John is referring to Jesus' baptism, which is found in Matthew. And I'm going to turn there and read it for you because I think it's important for us as we remember our own baptism. I'm in Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Excuse me, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Why do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so, for this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove, and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
Here, God the Father bears witness to the divinity of Jesus, calling him my son. For the first century Jew, this indicates that Jesus is equal to God the Father, and therefore divine. God the Father also bears witness to Jesus' righteousness, his right standing in conformance with God's law and nature. This is affirmed when God says, In whom I am well pleased. That's the water. Now the blood. The blood testifies. Jesus, as he dies on the cross, pours out his blood, and the blood itself bears witness to who he is and what he has come for as it pours out. Right before Jesus gives up his life, he references Psalm 22. Many things are going on in this quote, one of which is Jesus pointing to himself. It's as if he said, Psalm 22, don't forget, to reference a psalm at that time, since they weren't numbered, you'd quote the beginning of the psalm. So even as he hangs there, he quotes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't miss this, people. I'm Psalm 22 hanging in front of you. The last witness that testifies is the Spirit. And as we move from Ascension this week, which we celebrated on Thursday, to Pentecost here shortly, I want you to take particular notice of the witness of the Spirit. In his Gospel, John calls the Spirit parakletos, the paraclete. Often this word is translated into English as helper or comforter. It's actually a more technical term, which means character witness. A paraclete presents himself on behalf of a defendant so that the paraclete's good character can be credited to the defendant as their own. John uses this term earlier in his epistle, and I'm sure it will be familiar to your ears. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a parakletos, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. This is one of Cranmer's comfortable words we use weekly when we remind ourselves that Jesus constantly stands before the Father, witnessing to his own perfect, sinless, righteous character, which has been credited to us. When John identifies the Spirit as the third witness, he, that testifies, it calls to mind Jesus' promise found in John 14, 16, that another parakletos would be sent to us. If Jesus is our character witness before God, then the Holy Spirit is God's character witness before man. The Holy Spirit who is inside of us bears constant witness to who God is and what he has done for us and who we are as a result. The Spirit reminds us that we really are accepted and Jesus' righteousness is really ours. And because we believe in Jesus, we really do have eternal life now and in the future. Why three witnesses? John is doing two things, I think. Uh, many scholars believe, and I agree with them, that John is pointing to the truth of the witness of testimony by using three. He's hearkening back to Deuteronomy 17.16 and 19.15. This is a place in the law that requires two or three witnesses that agree in order to admit evidence as true testimony in a court of law. 
at that very same time he is undercutting his opponents who may have been pointing to Jesus' baptism and the descent of the Holy Spirit as evidence that Jesus was not fully God. They only have one witness. John has three that agree. And he tells us so in verse 8. Ground yourself in this, because it shows that we may be confident in bearing witness to Christ ourselves. In verse 10, John assures us that believing in the Son of God, we have that same testimony in us that the water, the blood, and the Spirit attest to. Therefore, be bold in your daily witness. Do not be ashamed as you interact with folks to think and speak as a Christian, because you testify to the truth. Let us pause here and consider the impact that all we have discussed. Because we have faith in Jesus, even now we have eternal life. John tells us we can believe this because of the testimony of the water, the blood, and the spirit. How does this help, you might ask? I may have eternal life, but my house is still a mess, and my life is racked with pain, and I'm still wrestling with sin that I just can't seem to beat. I may have life, but I feel exhausted and weary. First, let us be clear that as the water, the blood, and the Spirit testify, you really do have eternal life. If you're not seeing that evidence in your life, of its presence. I ask you what I ask myself. Are you taking time to let it have effect? Are you reading your Bible that the Spirit can bring back to memory what you have read? Are you spending regular time in prayer so that your will may be oriented towards God more and more? Are you confessing your sins? taking the time to go to Father Sean for auricular confession, or identifying one close friend that can be trusted to keep your confidence and who will preach the gospel to you when you confess. There are many devotional practices that can help you walk in this eternal life, and I encourage you to make time for them. As you think about prioritizing your relationship with God in your daily life, for that's what devotional practices are about. I want to say a word about the pushback we encounter when pursuing God through devotional practices. Sometimes we try to pursue these practices and we hear there's a voice. And this voice goes like this. You're joking. You're reaching out to God again. You're filthy in front of him. Look what you just did. Why bother? Think that will help? Just leave it be. It won't do you any good today. Today you're too far gone. Maybe tomorrow. Tomorrow's a new day. Work on that tomorrow. That's the voice of despair. That's the voice of despair which your enemy is trying to keep you with. Keep you away from the support systems God has given you. But it's wrong. Oh, it's so wrong. You are washed clean. You are righteous before God. In your baptism, God says to you, You are my son. You are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. And he has not stopped saying that yet. Many of you know that that is a lie, and so you avoid it. You're not caught by it. However, perhaps like me, you swallow the next lie, which goes something like this. 
you skipped your Bible reading again. What are you doing? You know better than that. You know you like the results of spending time with prayer. You feel so good when you're done. You do so much better in your day. How can you be thinking of skipping that? That would be a really bad idea. You know, you really should be putting more effort into this. Still a sinner. Better get your act together. Perhaps like me, you've misunderstood that voice as the Holy Spirit convicting or encouraging us to live as who we are. That voice is not the Holy Spirit. It too is a false witness, bearing false shame, hoping you'll pick it up. If you swallow this one, this lie, it hopes that the shame it offers you will cause you to avoid God's support system. It attempts to convince you, to draw you in, to think that that shame is yours to carry, that you're unworthy and drive you away from the very thing that would remind you otherwise. So if both of those are lies, what does Jesus sound like as we pursue these devotional practices? The true voice of Jesus goes like this. It's hard. I know it's hard. I've been there. It is very hard. But it's okay. I'm with you. You are mine and you're perfect in my eyes. Come again. Come again. I'm walking beside you. You don't have to do this alone. Come to me again. That's Jesus. That's compassion and love and peace. I don't know about you, but I find it hard to stay in these devotional practices. It's one of the reasons why they're called devotional. We have to devote ourselves to them, and we don't just fall into such things without intentional choice. Especially now, in our modern American culture, we are living in a diaspora, even in the local parish. We're living separated from one another just by the nature of where we work and live. All these practices are easier when they are done as a body, when we do them together. That's why Jesus gives each other to our... When I was in seminary, evening prayer was really easy. You just finished class and walked across the street. Everyone was heading there. It's just what you did. Went into the chapel, you sat down, and everyone else was there. There was nowhere else to be. But here we're all spread out in Lakewood and the surrounding cities. No one is there to knock on your door as they walk down the street to the local church and invite you along. So how do we deal with this difficulty? How do we support one another in hearing Jesus' voice? It is hard, and I am with you in it. Well, here's one way. If you're willing, I ask you to get out your cell phone. Go ahead, pull them out, and wake them up. And when you wake them up, I want you to go to your alarm app. Once you get to your alarm app, set an alarm for 8.30 p.m. and make it repeat daily. I'll give you a moment to actually do that. Please do do that. You can delete it later if you really don't want to do this.
the reason why it's easier to pray in community is because people are alongside you, praying with you. You have that support. So I'm making this announcement with Father Sean's permission. Between the hour of 8 and 9 every day, our parish is at prayer. Each day during this hour, at some point, we all know we will be gathered with one another in prayer. Now you have an alarm on your phone that will ring at 8.30 daily. Uh, you may want to move that alarm earlier in that time slot or later or even outside that time slot. You know what's best for your family and your needs. Uh, but if you choose to leave it at 8.30, when your alarm calls you to prayer, at the very least you know that everyone else in the parish at the same time is being called to prayer with you. You aren't praying alone. You're praying with all your brothers and sisters. When it rings, step aside. Excuse yourself from whatever gathering you're at, if only for a minute. Turn off the TV you're watching, set down the book, and settle down with your family spread across these cities as we pray together. Now, you don't have to pray for a whole hour. In fact, some days you might get only the scraps of a minute as you're running about working on baths or getting to an appointment, helping a loved one struggling with something else. You might get a chance to run through all of evening prayer or all of Compline. Don't saddle yourself with a time requirement. Just pause and pray for whatever time you have. Here at the end of John's epistle, he turns to prayer. Throughout this letter, he's been discussing with us who we are in Christ and what it means to love one another. What behavior shows we are disconnected from God? And here he turns to prayer. Look with me again at the end of our text for today in verse 13. John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him. That if we ask anything... According to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have that request we have asked of him. John tells us the end of goal of his epistle. He tells us he wants us to know we have eternal life. And then he immediately follows up with this truly remarkable assurance of how confident we can be approaching God in prayer. I don't know if you, you think about it this way, that as soon as you pray, God answers. I often don't. Because of our faith in Christ, as a result of eternal life we have now, we can be confident that if we ask God for anything according to his will, he hears us. To understand how remarkable this is, you need to know that the Greek word used for hear has it within it the concept of not just being aware. He's not saying, I hear you. Hang on a second. I'll get to you. Or, yes, yes, I think you're coming in. Pray harder. He's saying immediately, I hear you and I'm taking action. That quick. As soon as he hears it. He's responding positively to you. Of course, there is the caveat. You probably saw it. 
we must ask in accordance with his will, which is his gracious mercy. This isn't making a bunch of loopholes you have to jump through or asking you to say just the right words in just the right way to be just enough earnest in your prayer. This is a protection for us. Imagine if God said yes to everything you ever asked him for. Does that sound scary? To me, it sounds scary. Since our imperfect knowledge and continued ability to sin is present, we ask for things that could cause us great damage. So it's truly a mercy that he promises to only give us what he asks for, what we ask for, in accordance with his will. God gives us only good gifts and refuses to answer our prayers positively when we ask for things outside his will that will harm us or others. In all this, be encouraged, therefore, in your life, for it is true and full life that will not wear out and disappear with time, but is eternally enduring. Be encouraged as the Holy Spirit constantly stands with you as God's character witness, assuring you of the eternal life you have because Jesus lived and died and rose to make it possible for our relationship with God to be restored as it has been. Be encouraged as we begin to gather daily with everyone here in prayer. For as you pray, your will will become more and more tuned with his will. And the good things you ask for are yours, even as you utter the words, such is the love that your heavenly Father has for you, his children in whom he is well pleased. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.